You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. My name is John Horgan. I'm a science writer. I also teach at Stevens Institute of Technology. I've been talking about science for <clears throat> a really long time. Here on Blogging um, Heads, also called Meaning of Life TV, also called Mind Body Problems. And um, with me today is another science writer whose work I have admired from afar for, um, for a long time, Amanda Gefter. So, Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, uh, first, I, I just want to um, recall that we crossed tracks maybe three or four years ago at this conference organized by um, Deepak Chopra called Sages and Scientists. Yeah. And, uh, and you, um, you gave a talk there, uh, as I recall, on it was related to John Wheeler, the great physicist. Um, so, uh, and when I reminded you of this by email, you, you brought up this memory that you had of the conference. <laughs> yeah, so that whole, that whole thing was a very uh, sort of trippy experience because I was there as neither sage nor scientist. Um, I felt like somehow I just stumbled into this weird world. But, um, but the most vivid memory I have was that, um, you know, it was a much fancier conference than most science conferences because um, Deepak does it up and... Uh, so this was at the Beverly Wilshire and parked outside in front of the hotel where the conference was, was a velvet, a black velvet Bentley, which I had never seen anything like it. And I just remember, um, you know, my husband and I were looking at it and just joking, like, is there someone whose entire job it is just to like lint brush this velvet Bentley every day? Yeah, I, I, um, I'm really sorry I missed that. That was a trippy conference. It was very weird because it, in some ways it was like a science conference, but it was just a little bit sort of skewed. I mean, there were some major figures there, uh, people yeah. from Harvard and Yale um, and some other people whose work I admire. But uh, it was this really interesting uh, mashup. And I ended up giving a talk that was kind of saying mean things about Deepak. Um, and, and then I, and I ended up feeling kind of like an asshole for it because <laughs> he was so nice to me, but I felt sort of obliged to, to bite the hand that was feeding me. Yeah. <laughs> so, were you invited because, I mean, we're going to get back into this, but yeah. because you seem to be leaning toward um, a a view of reality that makes mind very important, if not fundamental. Is that fair to say? Um, I would sort of disagree with it, but partially because this is such like a nuanced argument. So I would say I, I lean towards a view of reality in which observers are incredibly fundamental. Um, I wouldn't use the word mind and we can get into that um, at any point. But um, so, so I would definitely say observers are fundamental. And so I think, so I had written a book, um, Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn, which um, Deepak somehow, I don't know how he ended up reading this book, but he ended up reading it. And because it talks a lot about observers and the nature of reality, um, he became really interested in it. And so that's how I ended up at that conference. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so that, that's a nice segue into uh, my next question. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, for those of people out there who have um, read your book, um, Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn, uh, they'll know your background. But for those who haven't read it, I just wonder if you could say a little bit about how you became a science writer in the first place, and especially a science writer who delves into the deepest philosophical issues coming out of physics and cosmology? Yeah, so I had a, a bit of a sort of strange path in. Um, so I, my whole story sort of started when I was a teenager, and my father, who's 
um, he's a, a radiologist, recently retired radiologist, um, who had always just had an interest in, I mean, had an academic background in biology, but always had an interest in physics, but even more so always had an interest in Zen Buddhism and Eastern philosophy. And he's just kind of this former hippie, like you, you can tell there's some deep stuff lurking under there. And um, he had taken me out to dinner and over the course of just a normal dinner had asked me how to define nothing. And we just, I was 15 and we ended up in this, you know, deep conversation about what is nothing? What is something? How did the universe come from nothing? And I mean, I wasn't even taking physics. Like I was taking meteorology, which is like the, you know, it was like the underachieving option at our high school. And um, I was failing math class. I mean, I was just like the least likely person to end up um, having these conversations, but he sort of made it all seem very exciting. And so we started teaching ourselves physics and this went on for years and we became really interested in John Wheeler. We read some of his work and um, as you know, he writes, you know, Wheeler writes like a poet and he, you know, everything just seems so deep and so exciting. And um, so in 2000, 2000 or 2001, um, I'm trying to remember now, um, it was Wheeler's 90th birthday and there was this huge conference um, in Princeton and were you there, John? I feel like you I wasn't, and I wish I was. Wheeler is one of my all-time favorite scientists. I yeah. did interview him in the uh, early '90s, and I had this whole section in in um, my first book on on Wheeler's ideas. Uh, but I, I I had some conflict, and I couldn't make it. Yeah, yeah. So so this conference was happening, and I just remember thinking, man, if there was only some way we could go to this conference, and so it just dawned on me to call the uh, people in charge of the conference. And, and just, I said, I was from Manhattan magazine, which didn't, wasn't a real thing, and, but it sounded very much like a real thing. Um, and that I wanted to come as a journalist and they agreed and, and I got a plus one. And so me and my dad show up at this conference um, claiming to be science journalists. I, you know, I'd never written anything in my life and, um, we got these press badges and we got to meet all the physicists and meet Wheeler and ask questions. And it was such a defining moment in my life where I realized like, oh, if you're a science journalist, you actually can just do this. Like you can just talk to the most brilliant people in the world and whatever questions you're trying to figure out for yourself, you can just ask them. And so from that moment on, I was like, I think I need to actually be a science journalist. And so I ended up pitching a story to Scientific American um, based on, on that conference. And just by some like complete miracle, they took it without asking me like what my background was. <laughs> and, um, and it was just like the luckiest break in the whole world because from then on, I ended up, you know, being able to parlay that into like an actual science writing career. So it was basically, I, I faked my way pretending to be a science journalist and then somehow that morphed into a actual science journalism career. I suspect a lot of science journalists end up becoming science journalists by kind of pretending to be science journalists. And then I'm realizing that more and more. And I think like most of us, like, you know, probably our deeper reasons for wanting to do this. I'm sure this is true for you. is like just wanting to figure out all this stuff for ourselves. And, and it's just a, a way of doing it through writing and through conversations as opposed to through doing the actual science. But, um, but I, I think, yeah, a lot of the science journalists I, I know, I'm starting to realize, like, just want to figure this stuff out and just want to have some understanding of it. Um, and it's just an amazing way to get to do it. I have to just say that I, I, you're very fortunate that you figured out science journalism was your perfect career path at such a young age. You were just a teenager, right, when you went to... Uh... Well, by the time I went to the Wheeler Conference, I was... I had just graduated from college. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, did you want to be a writer from a, a writer of some kind? Yes. Yeah. So I, I think I had always thought I'd be like a fiction writer or a poet or something. Um, I don't think at first I didn't really know science journalism was a thing. Um, and when I realized it was, it was like, oh my God, yeah, my love of writing, my love of these deep ideas, perfect career. Yeah, um, I, I, it, I didn't 
discover science journalism or decide that was a thing I could do until I was in my late 20s. Uh, yeah. And I didn't get my first job until I was 30. But when I was in, jo- in journalism school, uh, for some reason, I can't remember exactly why, I think it was in a science writing course, I discovered the work of Wheeler and um, I fell in love with him. You know, he was talking, uh, this is the early 80s, and he was talking back then about um, the anthropic principle and also the many worlds theory. He hadn't turned his back on it uh, yet. And, um, and he seemed to be holding out this hope of physics as a way to understand the world, yeah. like to solve, you know, you, since I was a little kid, I looked at the world and my, my reaction was, what the hell, what is this? <laughs> And then, you know, also looking at myself and going, what, what am I and how am I related to all this? And then I, I realized that there are these people, I mean, I knew philosophers thought about this stuff and, and artists and poets too, but physics, it seemed, had a chance of actually answering these sorts of questions Yeah. about like what the universe, what reality is. Yeah. Um, and and Wheeler seemed to have a particularly, uh, his ideas seemed particularly deep and evocative. Uh, so um, just just give us a little overview of um, of Einstein's lawn. Sure. Um, so so it's a it's kind of this hybrid book. It's like sort of a memoir and also a physics book. So it tells the story of me and my dad trying to you know, answer this question about what is nothing and, and sneaking our way into these physics conferences and meeting all these amazing people. And um, so there's this sort of father daughter story that runs throughout the whole book, but then, um, but it's also very much a physics book. And basically like one thing that we realized early on is that when you ask the question, like what is real, what is ultimately real? Um, which sounds like this very sort of vague philosophical question that there's actually a very sort of rigorous way to ask that in the context of physics, which is physicists would say um, that what's real is what's invariant. Um, So if you, to take relativity, for example, which is sort of the first example of this, you know, we, before Einstein, we all thought space and time were just these absolute features of the universe. That's just how that's, that was just like the arena in which things happen. Um, and that just truly ultimately exists. And what Einstein realized is actually, if you start looking at what one observer sees versus what another observer sees, you realize that what I might see as space, you could see as time and vice versa. Um, we can disagree on um, lengths and uh, durations of time. Um, and of course, in, in relativity, there's still certain things that we would agree on that are invariant, which are these sort of higher dimensional uh, space-time intervals. But so, so those would be invariant and therefore ultimately real, whereas space and time individually are not invariant and therefore not ultimately real. And so it just became, it, it was such a epiphany for me to realize, oh, there's a way, there's a really clear way of defining what we mean by real. We mean observer independent invariant in any reference frame, invariant, depending, like, no matter who you ask, they would all agree this thing exists. Um, You know, we all sort of know that intuitively. It's like, you know, if I see a pink elephant walking by and I ask you, hey, do you see that elephant? And you're like, no, I probably know it's not real. Um, so, So it's kind of like an intuitive thing, but there's this very rigorous way in physics that you can take a given feature of the universe and then start pushing on it by saying, well, what does it look like from every different reference frame? Um, and those can be like very abstract mathematical frames, not just space-time frames. But, um, but basically, if the thing disappears in some frame, then it's not ultimately, ultimately real. And so in the book, we kind of make this list of here's all the possible things that could be ultimately real, particles, fields, strings, dimensions, space-time, all these things, and then even the universe itself. And we start going through and learning all the physics. And one by one, we find ourselves crossing everything off this list. Um, That all these things that you would think, like particles, you would think would be so fundamental, they're not actually invariant. Um, 
and you know you take particle and curve space time one observer will say there's a particle there one will will say there's not and that and neither's right neither is wrong it's just that it's not an invariant concept and so um so little by little we're sort of whittling down the ingredients of the world until you get to the very real possibility that maybe everything's made of nothing which is what wheeler really wanted to say um and so so, so that's really what the book is about. It goes through that kind of physics. But what's interesting about that is, um, so one way of saying that is these things aren't ultimately real, they're observer dependent. And so where I kind of ended on in that book was saying, it seems like everything's radically observer dependent. But what was sort of still keeping me up at night after the book went to press was but what's really an observer? Like if we're saying everything's observer dependent, what's an observer and how am I supposed to think about that? Um, and so that's sort of what I've been thinking about ever since. Yeah. Um, I, this, I did, by the way, I, I read your book. I, I think it was in galleys um, before it, before it came out. So it, it's been a while, but, um, but I've also been looking at some of your writings online. And, and by the way, I should say that the reason we're talking right now is because we both have been participating in this kind of ongoing series of talks um, called uh, biomentality or something like that. Yeah. Biological mentality. Yeah. Biological mentality, which is, I see it as being kind of about the mind body problem with a lot of quantum mechanics mixed in. Yeah. That fair to say. And, And so I heard you give a talk. Uh, a week ago that really got my brain cells firing. And so I, that's why I reached out to you uh, for this conversation, but this concept of invariance as being what is real. I mean, I guess my, my uh, immediate reaction is what about all, you know, life and consciousness and so much of, of our lives is um, ephemeral and, you know, things, come and go and things to happen once and then they're gone. Like our, our own lives are examples of that. Yeah. So, so what about that part of re- what I would call reality as opposed to, I don't know, this more sort of enduring ob- so, so-called objective parts that physicists are after? Yeah. I mean, so I think, think it was Wheeler, I could be wrong on this, who said something like, you know, physics is that which goes on its eternal way, despite all the shadowy changes in appearances or something like that, you know, that there's supposed to be, I mean, this idea has been around since like the Greeks, you know, there's, there's change and then there's whatever's beneath the change. Um, And so physics was always meant to sort of get at what's beneath all this ephemeral stuff. Um, But it's a, it's not clear there's anything down there. And, and B, I mean, even if there was, there's a sense in which it's very clear that everything that matters to us is the stuff that's not invariant. Um, And everything that, that means anything or that, that is us or, um, you know, everything you're saying is the stuff exactly that's not invariant. And so, um, so I don't think it's a matter of discounting that. It's just sort of saying, well, if, if the job of physics is to get to like, what are the ultimate building blocks that's under all of that stuff? Um, but it, again, if, if it ends up that there's not building blocks underneath that stuff, then that stuff becomes even more important in a way. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think, I think everything that we care about is the stuff that's not invariant. Right. And then, of course, it's, uh, yeah, and this is like an ancient philosophical uh, issue. What's the relationship between what is transient and what is um, enduring? Uh, the, when you were sort of delving into Wheeler, were you, um, were you also getting into his, I forget exactly when he started using these terms, but there are two in particular that that were very um, inspiring for me or provocative. Uh, one is um, the participatory universe, yeah. and it's he had that diagram uh, of the, the U. 
Yeah, the eyeball with a big U, and then I forget what's on the other side, like a, you know, it's something. A bang. It's like a like a little explosion or something. Yeah, that's reality. Yeah. And, uh, and so there's this weird relationship. It's expressing this weird relationship between consciousness and observation and, and whatever it is that, uh, that we're looking at. And then the other notion is um, the it from bit, which seemed yeah. all kind of entangled with that idea of the participatory universe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, I, so Wheeler kept um, notebooks. And, um, like very, very detailed notebooks that he wrote in every day, um, that detailed every conversation he ever had, every thought he ever had, every thing he ate, every phone call he had, every, uh, I mean, they're like unbelievable. <laughs> like every moment of his life is in these notebooks. Um, and he donated them all to the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. And so I've spent a lot of time with these notebooks, like months and months. I mean, because they're they're extensive, um, and it's an amazing experience because you really feel like you're you're in his mind. I mean, um, to get to see someone of that stature like struggling on the page in real time with all of these ideas is amazing. And so one of the things that I saw in the notebook is is him working out that little diagram that you're talking about. He had different versions of it and he would try out different things and he was, he was trying to sort of get at this idea. And then, um, yeah, it from bit, I mean, he worked so hard on, on like naming things and coming up with the right words for things. And he would, he would have, there would be pages in the journal that were just lists of words out of the thesaurus so like for observer, there'd be, you know, participator, spectator, whatever. you know, he'd have these long lists and he, he just thought so hard about like, what's the right word for everything. And um, yeah, so, so I definitely got very into all of those ideas. And I mean, one of the things in the journals that really stuck with me was he, so he had this idea it from bit, which is that everything has this kind of information theoretic character to it that, um, that everything really just is information and, and that what we call an it, like a table or a pen or a cup, um, is really ultimately just bits uh, of information. But and, and this was a really fruitful idea because the whole field of sort of quantum information theory came out of this. Um, so it wasn't just, I mean, it was a slogan, but it, it was a very useful slogan. Um, but there was a, a line in one of the journals where he said, about no feature of it from bit am I less comfortable than whose bit? And he just kept thinking, what is it? The, the problem he struggled with the most in the journals um, was how, if, if the universe is a participatory universe, if observers play this fundamental role, what happens when you have more than one observer? And, and this was what he struggled with really till the very end of his life. And, um, and this is a question I still find just so interesting. Um, but yeah, whose bit? And and is my bit the same as your bit? And if I observe something, what does that mean for you? And um, you know, he he had this this other quote where he said, like, does does one agent act as agent for everyone else? You know, if I because that was sort of the idea of the Copenhagen interpretation, in, in a way, implicitly, was if I observe something and I, you know collapse the wave. I mean, Bohr never used that language, but if I, if I observe something and, you know, it was this sort of non-state of all these possibilities and then I observe it and it becomes an actuality and I say, okay, the electron is spin up. Well, what happens when, when you come along? Is it now, is it spin up for you? Because if it is, then you can actually derive these like inconsistencies in quantum mechanics. And so, so Copenhagen never, never worked that out. Um, and so there was always this, you know, you mentioned like Wheeler got onto many worlds, but then eventually left that. It's like, I think what he realized was Copenhagen was never really complete because it couldn't deal with multiple observers. And so he was trying to get at what's the right interpretation that can do that. Right. And th this is, I don't know if we want to go to this right now. I was sort of saving for later in our conversation what I 
I think is your at least tentative answer to this. Well, yeah, let's just go for it right now. Um, <laughs> which is something I've just become interested in uh, recently, and it's cubism. Yeah. So you see cubism as this, um, it's, uh, well, I just learned about it within the last uh, few months. Um, and uh, and I don't, re- I've read a few papers on it by Chris Fuchs, who I think is the guy who's mainly responsible for it. Another paper by David Merman, this old time uh, quantum philosophy guy who wrote a paper that made me feel like I understand it a little bit better. But I think you're, you're right in the middle of it. So can you try to explain uh, for these non-physicists out there primarily what cubism is? Yeah, I'll try my best. I mean, I, I should say I probably can't like really speak for cubism, um, but I will, but I'll, I can say sort of what I, what I see in it and what I find so interesting. I mean, so, so if you sort of leave off the story of, you know, Bohr and, and Copenhagen sort of seeing the observer playing the central role, but then there being this question of what happens when you have a second observer, that's sort of where cubism starts. Um, and and in a way, there's really, um, there's, I sort of see quantum interpretations in like two families. Um, so in, in one family, uh, I'm thinking of the best way to put this. So, well, okay. So one way that I would put all of this that I think is like at the, at the core of this is um, this question of like, in what perspective can we describe reality? And, and the sort of old school classical Newtonian idea is that you can describe it in third person. So a third person perspective is like, you know, like in literature it would be like an omniscient narrator that just says, you know, he walked down the street. Um, and it's just a fact. It's just how the world is. It's not really from anyone's perspective. It's just from the view from outside the universe, like the view from everywhere, the God's eye view. Um, the view uh, Thomas Nagel uses this phrase, the view from nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great it's a great phrase. And so in a way, classical physics is meant to be the view from nowhere. It's just how things are, um, not things ha- not how things appear to someone, but just how they are. Um, and so so I would sort of divide all of quantum interpretations into two camps. One is in which you're sort of trying to recover something like a third person description, even though ultimately you can't. You can't because the world is quantum, it's not classical, um, but they still sort of try. Um, and I would argue like fail, <laughs> but but try to, to come up with some kind of third person description. And then there's the, the interpretations that just say, you know what, we're just gonna accept that there is no third person description and work from there. And the, the interpretations that do that sort of, it started with Copenhagen and then the modern day versions of that would be like Carlo Rovelli's um, relational quantum mechanics and cubism. So those are sort of in the same family, if that, if that helps anyone understand um, how to, how to sort of divvy these things up. So, um, so cubism would start from something like a Wigner's friend scenario. So Wigner's friend is this, this, classic thought experiment where you say, um, you know, you have something like a Schrodinger's cat. So the cat's in the box. It's in a state of dead end alive before it's measured. And then an observer comes along and measures the cat and says, okay, the cat's alive. Um, But the observer and the cat are all in like an isolated laboratory. So they're in their own box. And you have another observer outside who you call Wigner because Wigner is the one who came up with this and, and quantum mechanics would tell Wigner just in the same way that you talked about the cat, that now the whole system of cat plus observer are in a superposition of the observer having observed an alive cat and the observer having observed a dead cat. And then Wigner can like open the box and find that superposition to collapse to one or the other side. So now you can have a situation where the person inside the lab, um, let's call her Vigner's friend, um, looks at the cat and says, oh, the cat's alive. 
Now Vigner opens the box that's the lab and finds a friend who saw a dead cat. So you can have a complete contradiction. And, and there's no, nothing in the quantum formalism gives you any way to, to resolve that at all. It just says, that's just how, you know, it's one state for Wigner and a different state for the friend. But now you have this very strange take on reality where reality itself doesn't seem to be invariant. And so, um, so if you try to give a third person description where you just say, well, what's the state of the cat? Is it alive or dead? Like, what's the reality? There's no way to do that. Um, and so cubism sort of starts from that paradox and says quantum states are not facts in the world. They're not facts about the world. You're not describing the cat. They're describing the observer's knowledge of the cat or the observer's knowledge isn't even really the right word. It's the observer's degrees of belief for what they will find when they interact with the cat. Um, and so there's no contradiction there there's no reason to worry about the fact that the friend has one set of beliefs and the figner outside has another set of beliefs because they're their beliefs yeah we can all have different beliefs um so there's no real contradiction anymore um but and so you resolve the paradox but at the cost of giving up on a third person description um which cubism would say is, is a positive thing because there was no third person description anyway um <laughs> So, but it's very different than other interpretations. Like every other interpretation takes, you know, the quantum state or the wave function, whatever you want to call it, to be like a, a thing in the world, a fact of reality. And this is saying it's describing an observer's degrees of belief about what will happen when they interact with something. Yeah, the way I, I was trying to understand it is that you have, and by the way, I should say, I think, cubism it's spelled q b i s m yeah. and q for quantum and then b i think for for bayesian it, so it was originally for bayesianism um and because the the whole idea of degrees of belief and and how you update those beliefs based on the outcome of the interaction all of that has this bayesian quality to it um but they eventually realized that there's so many different types of Bayesianism and, and different, um, you know, there's sort of objective Bayesian, subjective Bayesian, and then all these kind of schools within those that eventually they sort of dropped it in the way that um, Chris Fuchs always puts it is it's like KFC where it used to stand for Kentucky fried chicken, but now it's just KFC. Uh, <laughs> so cubism is just cubism. <laughs> it doesn't stand for anything. It's really evocative. I mean, I love the the, the spelling and everything. It it really uh, it really works for me. And even it, I meant I've mentioned it to a couple of people, and 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 uh, more than once I've gotten the reaction. Oh, like you mean like the artistic movement? Like Picasso, yeah. And I said no, but yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's it's that kind of it's that kind of radical way of of looking at reality. The um, the way I envision it uh, is that it sort of it goes with um, you know so there's there's this old idea of solipsism that each of us is kind of sealed in our own little subjective bubble and I can't really I have no direct access to your uh, consciousness I sort of take it on on faith and we exchange these signals that, that uh, make us think that each of us is, uh, is conscious, but you can't really be sure. And, and I think of cubism as sort of going with that and the universe is construct. It's kind of like a sort of a version of the multiverse, except each sentient being is a little cosmos. And then we're all sort of floating around and bumping into each other. And one of the reasons I like this is because um, I'm, uh, I happen to be reading Ulysses by James Joyce right now. That's and, my favorite uh, book. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so maybe you could tell me if, if, um, if, if this uh, rings true to you. There's a section in the middle of it where Leopold Bloom, the main character, is wandering around and Joyce is popping in and out of his consciousness and then jumping into these other consciousnesses 
of people that he's encountering and some people that he's not even encountering. The, the, the narrator is moving around. So the, the narrator is kind of representing some sort of like global yeah. uh, reality, but within it, they're just these little bubbles of people with their, with their internal thoughts moving around and colliding yeah. with each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so the cubists very vehemently reject the idea that it solves a sick. Um, <laughs> so I should, I should say that. Um, but so, so this gets really interesting. This is sort of like the talk that you heard me give, like, this is kind of where I was trying to go, which is in a sense, like whether or not you consider it solipsistic depends on your understanding of what the mind is. And so this gets really interesting because you wouldn't initially think that dealing in quantum mechanics, you would have to answer that question. Um, but it turns out that I think you really do. And, um, I mean, this is, you've been saying this all along that you, quantum mechanics is a mind body problem. Like you have to, you can't avoid these questions. Um, and so for cubism, cubism, because it comes out of kind of the formalisms of decision theory, Bayesian decision theory and things like that. Um, you know, in those theories, the, the observer or the agent it is kind of a primitive in the theory. Like it's just assumed you have an agent who has to make a decision. And then the theory is how, how best to make a decision, how best to take bets on, on the world. Um, and so you don't have to ask what's, well, what is the agent or what's the nature of the agent or anything like that. Um, but you know, when we start getting into questions of what's the real reality here and what's really happening, like then you want to start asking those Questions And so in cubism, like an agent would be anyone that uses quantum mechanics as a form of decision theory. Um, so like Carlo Rovelli in relational quantum mechanics, which is very similar, would say, oh, anything can be an observer, an electron can be an observer. And cubism would say, no, well, electrons don't use, don't have to write down quantum states to make bets on the outcomes of experiments. Like they, they're not users of a decision theory. Um, and so it seems to push it up towards something more like humans, um, but not in, the, not in the sense necessarily that it requires something like consciousness, but just because it's a decision theory and who uses a decision theory. Um, but, and so in cubism, you can have scenarios where you would say a team of scientists doing one experiment can be considered an agent, a single agent. Um, whereas if we're thinking of like consciousnesses in somebody's head, obviously that wouldn't be true. Um, so it stretches the definition of observer in that way. Um, but when you start, so it, so there's different, just like there's different interpretations of quantum mechanics, there's different interpretations of cognitive science and, and what a mind is. And I think one interpretation has become so prevalent that we forget that there could be others. Um, and the one that's so prevalent is what's called cognitivism, which is this idea um, that you are sort of describing of like, you know, I take in information from the world through my senses, but then I construct a kind of virtual reality, an internal representation of that world in my head. And the thing that I experience is never the world directly. It's the thing in my brain. Um, and if that's the case, then what I'm experiencing is completely metaphysically inaccessible to you. Um, you have your internal world. I have my internal world. We have no way other than like pure inference of, of assuming that we are anything but zombies and, um, and all of this. Um, so that's one way of talking about what the mind is. And then you have the hard problem and all these other things. Um, but there's a whole other world of cognitive science, um, that goes by terms like 4E cognitions. It's like embodied cognition, inactive cognition. And I've just gotten so into this stuff lately. Um, but in those views, that they're completely different. Um, there's no internal representations. The mind is not something happening in the brain. Um, it's happening in your bodily engagement with the world, um, which is a which is not sealed away and that's not private and it's not inaccessible to other people. Um, so, so if you take uh, an interpretation like cubism and you say, is it solipsistic or not? 
part of the question kind of depends on what you mean by a mind and an observer. And so if you take the mind to be a cognitivist Cartesian mind that's locked away in the head, then yeah, it's going to be solipsistic, but you don't have to take that view. So, so it's just really interesting to me because it's, you start in quantum mechanics and you somehow you ask a couple of questions and suddenly you find yourself in cognitive science. <laughs> it's just a totally um, kind of different world. But, um, but yeah, so all of these questions depend on like, how you're defining terms, like what's an observer, what's a mind, all of that. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I love how, you know, you're, you're going right from interpretations of quantum mechanics right into the heart of the mind-body problem. Yeah. So the term that you used in your talk for this idea of, of the mind being something that is embodied and emerges through our the the interactions of our physical self yeah. with with the world it's called an activism yes yeah okay let me just try to let me let me see if i understood it uh correctly and um so what i what i thought was i i thought you really swerved in your talk i thought you were starting off as being kind of a I don't know, an idealist moving toward this position that mind is somehow essential. And that's certainly the message that I take away from cubism. But then when you were, you were presenting the ideas of an activism and embodied and mind as something embodied. And this comes from a guy that I interviewed a long time ago, about 20 years ago, named Francisco, Francisco Varela, among other people. Um, and I, I understood you much more than I understood Francisco Varela. Uh, the irony I thought was that this embodied view of the mind seems like almost uh, trying to get mind out of the equation. Certainly mind or consciousness is something that is separate from the physical world. It's almost as though it's a physicalist or a materialist way of understanding um, yeah. ourselves and our relationship to the world. Is that, am I missing it's, something? It, yeah. So it gets very nuanced because, um, so I, I like to, to, I think it's useful to bring it back to this question of perspective, like, so a third person perspective. Oh, hold on a sec. Sure. Forgot to unplug my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it comes back to this question of perspective, like, like a third person perspective would be, you know, how the, how the world just is, that would be a materialistic perspective. Um, a first person perspective would be, you know, a kind of idealist in the head, uh, type of perspective, um, totally subjective. Um, and so, and, and, and things like the hard problem in cognitive science, it, the hard problem is the question, how do you go from a third person perspective to a first person, right? How do you go from a brain that's sitting in a world as an object to the experience of a subject um, in first person. And the measurement problem in quantum mechanics is very similarly a question of how you go from third person to first person. So you have something like a wave function that's just evolving according to the Schrodinger equation. That's a third person description, typically not in cubism, but in these other views. Um, And then, and that has, you know, all these possible outcomes and then how do you go from that to me looking at an electron and just seeing one, possible, one outcome? Um, so how do you go from this third person to the first? So the hard problem, how do you go from third to first? Measurement problem, how do you go from third to first? And really, like, all the questions about Cartesian dualism, all these things, is a question of how do you relate the fact that there's supposed to be a third-person world that is some particular way with the fact that we have these first-person experiences of it that are not the same? Um, and so, but if you take like the cubist perspective, which again, I would argue like, is that the natural outcome of really, of just quantum mechanics, that there is no third person perspective to start, then it changes the nature of all these questions because you no longer have to ask, how do you go from third to first? But then the question becomes, well, okay, if it's, if there's no third, are we automatically like defaulting into first and then it's idealism and it's solipsism and it's all this stuff. Um, 
And, and the argument that I was trying to make in that talk um, is that there's actually a middle ground, which is second person, but we can come back to that. Um, but I, but the point is, if you think of an activism and embodied cognition and all of this as happening in a third person world, then you're right. It just be, it just reverts to materialism or behaviorism, or it's just saying, you know, it's just my body doing things and interacting and all of that. But if you try to talk about all that without a third person perspective, it's not actually materialism and it's not actually behaviorism. Um, so it is something sort of in the middle and it's, it's very, the stuff is, it's hard to think about because we're so used to either third person or first person. Um, but you know, one of the, the terms that like, uh, phenomenologists and people like Merleau-Ponty and philosophers use is like the lived body, right? Which is sort of different than the body as an object in third person. It's like the, the experience of the lived body. And that's really an embodied cognition. It's more about the lived body. So it's, it, it doesn't really, it, it's, it's definitely not materialism for sure, because there's no, there's no third person. Um, so, but it's not idealism either. Um, so another way that I would put this in case it's just useful is like, I, I would say that the central lesson of quantum mechanics is that subject and object just can never be decoupled. And I think like the, the you that we all, had like that's what that's describing like you have observer at one end and the observed on the other but they're connected you know and you can't pull them apart and that's why it's a participatory universe because you can't talk about the universe without the observer but likewise you can't talk about the observer without the universe and so if they can't be pulled apart then you know like third person would be just an object without a subject but first person would be a subject without an object and you can't do either one. So you need to have something in the middle and that's where it becomes like very tricky. <laughs> so, okay. So then now you have to present um, your, I don't know, you based metaphysics and this is not letter U. Now we're talking mm -hmm. about Y O U. Yes. Uh, which you talked about it in, in, um, in your talk and uh, uh, last week, and I found really, really cool and interesting. Uh, so if you just give us like a quick sketch of that. Yeah, so, so second person, I mean, so second person means, yeah, exactly, Y-O-U, you. Um, but it's, it's, so philosophically, you know, so, so I saying, you know, I, I am sad, I am happy. Um, I is like the Cartesian kind of cogito, like the, like my, you know, there's this idea like my, my feelings, my thoughts, my perceptions are just given to me transparently. I don't have to do anything to like, like I have to make inferences to assume that you have thoughts, but I don't have to make inferences to assume I have thoughts. My thoughts are just here. Um, and so that's the I, it's like, that's the subject without an object. Um, which I would say quantum mechanics says you can't, can't have. Um, and then, you know, the it would be the object without a subject, which you can't have. Um, and you, you is interesting because there's a philosopher, Martin Buber, who has a book called I and Now, which is, is this very like sort of mystical. I remember the first time I read it, I couldn't make, any sense of it, but I realize now actually is, is this second person kind of metaphysics. And what he says is as soon as you say you, you're automatically saying I there's, it's a pair. It's I, you. Um, so if I say the word you, that's never spoken like from this God's eye view or the view from nowhere, it's spoken from a perspective, mm -hmm. right? And it's a direct address. So if I say you, there's somebody who's saying that, which is me. And so there's always a relation. So second person always deals in relations. It's never an object or a subject, but it's a subject object relation. Um, and so it always has that subject object coupling at the heart of it. And so it, I think it's sort of the perfect, the perfect uh, perspective to take in a quantum mechanical universe. Um, but what it tells you is that, that you can't in, in that picture, in a second person picture, you can't think of the mind as 
this, you know, transparently given thing that's in my head that no one else can access and all of that. So you get around all these mind, typical mind body problems that come from taking either a first person or third person perspective. Yeah. What I like about it is, um, this you based, uh, I don't know, solution to, to quantum mechanics and the mind body problem is that it does, it's, um, it's very spiritually resonant. And I just wonder if that's something that you've always been looking for. Do you want your, your kind of answer to the, the questions that have been bothering you? Uh, do you want the answer to be consoling or meaningful or sort of to help us yeah. through the you know, dark nights of the soul? Does that matter to you? Well, what's really interesting personally for me was that I always had a very solipsistic tendencies. Like I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm like an introverted person. I, I'm happy to spend a lot of time alone, just reading a book. Like I, I'm someone who like, I would have used language like, you know, I, I, I live in my head. I, um, you know, which now I don't think is, is accurate language at all, but, um, but that, I always had that view and I always had the sense that everything was kind of virtual reality simulation happening in my head. And I, I used to think like, Oh, you know, when I die, I, I hope someone will cryogenically freeze my head and then, you know, I can come back and um, like, I, you know, the whole brain in a vat matrix kind of thing like that made a lot of sense to me. And um, so I very much, I didn't think I needed a kind of you based view I was sort of comfortable with an the I to me you know there's there's a sense in which an, an I-based philosophy is very claustrophobic but there's also a sense in which it's very cozy and safe like I'm I'm in my head and you know I'm not my body and I'm 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 safe behind the skull and um and so I don't I didn't think I needed a change in that um whereas Wheeler when he was in, in the notebooks where he was worried about this question of multiple observers and what happens when multiple observers are participating, are they, are they making different universes? Are they making the same universe? How do you talk about it? He really deeply morally needed an understanding of quantum mechanics that could account for multiple observers. He really did not want anything solipsistic. Um, and I, I always thought, oh, that's interesting. That's just like his sort of moral take. And, and I didn't have that. Like I was sort of okay with the solipsistic thing. And actually, like if you look at some of my writing from not even that long ago, like I wrote this essay called Cosmic Solipsism. Like I use the word solipsism a lot. Um, and what I've learned in all of this really like shook me at the foundation to realize my mind is not trapped away in my head. And like Myself is not some pre-given thing. It's it's something that's being enacted through my interactions with the world and my interactions with other people. And thinking is something that I do in conversations like this with other people. It's not something I do by myself. And um, you know, eventually we we're able to think by ourselves, but we don't start off thinking by ourselves. We think in engagement with other people and um and just realizing that I'm embodied and in the world and and all of that and and connected to people in a way where nobody is like nobody's trapped in their heads um it has just totally changed my entire perspective on life in a way that I didn't think I needed but actually is very has had a really positive effect on me I think see this is this is one of the reasons so my um I I wrote a book I posted it on the internet a couple of years ago called mind body problems. And the premise was, so mind body problems is plural. First of all, because the mind body problem is a lot of entangled problems like consciousness and free will. And I think it also encompasses uh, uh, morality, nature, nurture, all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. But also I, I had come recently to the, conclusion uh that every single individual because of his and her own 
life circumstances, temperament, everything else poses a unique mind-body probe. Yeah. And what we're looking for when we look for solutions to the mind-body problem are, I mean, you know, there can be practical effects um, of an understanding how the brain causes mental illness, let's say, and that would lead to better treatments. But a lot of what we're looking for, I think, is a sense of meaning and I think consolation, um, you know, something that kind of is compatible with our, with our, with life as we see it. And, and that's different for everybody. Yeah. And, and so what you just said seems to me, it's, you know, you're confirming my bias, uh, but because it, it seems to me that you were, well, let me just say, I've always felt also alienated from the world since I was a little kid. And I think, and I've talked to a lot of other, I've written about this, and I've talked to a lot of other scientists and philosophers, and especially people who think about the mind-body problem, about this feeling of alienation, and many of them share it. And I think it's, it's the reason, it's, it's a motivation for thinking about these questions and, look, and looking for a resolution that makes the feeling of estrangement go away. The irony is that for me is, and, and you know, some of us have looked for it in cosmic consciousness, right? The boundary between yourself and the rest of the world dissolves and you melt into, um, you know, this ocean of, of bliss. I used to think I wanted that. Now I don't want it anymore. <laughs> now I, I like, I feel very fortunate to be slightly alienated from the yeah. looking at it. Because I see the world as a puzzle and I get so much pleasure out yeah. of trying to figure it out and talking to people like you and, you know, we're swapping ideas here about um, you know, how to make sense of this. Yeah. Uh, the question I wanted to ask you, this sort of related to what I just said is, and this is something that's, that's also obsessed me for a long time. Do you think there is an answer? So Wheeler has this wonderful passage at the end of one of his books where he said that at some point in the future, we will understand reality, solve the mystery, and it will be this blinding revelation. We'll think, oh, my God, how could we not have seen that? Um, How stupid of us not to have seen it before. And, you know, I see it as this kind of sort of revelation that, I saw it when I was taking LSD, just go, wow, okay, that's it. And then, you know, the mystery is dispelled. Right. Do you, do you have that kind of, do you believe in that? Do you believe in that kind of revelation? I mean, I'm not sure. Like, so Wheeler, I think, the fact that Wheeler had that kind of optimism that he could solve the mystery was what pushed him on every day. And so I think on some level, we all need that a little bit, right? Cause if you, if you just sort of throw up your hands and say, I'll never know, then, then you don't try. Um, on the other hand, I think we could, you know, maybe there's like an asymptotic answer where you can get closer and closer, but you never really get there kind of. Um, I I mean, Wheeler, I I was looking through some of my notes from his journals the other day, and I had totally forgotten this, but there was a, a passage where he said, I'm going to start every day with a prayer that says, may I see clear and straight and deep and strange. And I just thought that was like so beautiful. Um, you know, he 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 wanted an answer and he was going to get up every day and try to find it. But he also was sort of the deep and strange to me is like, you know, it, 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 there's depths there that maybe you can't ever really get all the way down. Um, so I don't I don't know. I mean, I think it's also like what what does an answer mean? Like. Like, I'd be willing to believe that the answer is everything is nothing. Like, that that just, to me, seems so logically satisfying in a way, because if everything's nothing, you don't have to explain where nothing comes from. Um, but, but then the question, like, let's say that was the answer. 
but that's obviously not the answer answer because then you say, well, okay, why doesn't it look like nothing? Why does it look like something? Why, you know, and then there's a million other questions you can ask. Um, and I guess I kind of hope the questions, there's always more questions because otherwise what do we do? But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've mixed, I've mixed feelings about that. It's like, you, I want the optimism to think that you can solve things, but it's sort of depressing to think you would solve them like completely. Absolutely. That that's this paradox. I think I, I first realized that there's this paradox. It's kind of an emotional paradox at the heart of science back in the 1980s when I was, I was, I first encountered this idea that there might be a final theory of physics uh, that would really, you know, explain why there's something rather than nothing and sort of be, be the answer to the riddle of things. And of course, the scientists, Stephen Hawking and Stephen Weinberg and Roger Penrose and people like that, they, they crave that answer. Uh, but as you say, what happens if you get it? Right. What, you know, what makes life meaningful after you figure out reality after you answer the the big the big questions yeah uh, so it's kind of you you have to believe there's an answer I think a lot of people are just have split minds part of them absolutely believes that there is an answer and craves it but another part hopes that it's never found and even doesn't believe that it will be found yeah yeah I mean, yeah, like like just looking at Wheeler's journals and seeing him asking questions to the day he died. I mean, it's like, it, it, on the one hand, you read it and it's so sad and it's so like that he never figured it out. Like he didn't, he didn't, you know, it ends with a question, not a period. And, and that's so, so heartbreaking. And then on the other hand, it's so inspiring because like, how sad would it be to, I don't, I don't know. It's like, I, I feel like that's kind of how it has to be. Yeah. And, and of course there's the probability is that if you think you have the answer, <laughs> right. you're, you're wrong. Well, there's and a lot that, of people that think they have the answer. Absolutely. <laughs> In physics and elsewhere. <laughs> yes. And uh, the, the older I get, the, uh, the more I've, I've, my, my attitude is that we don't know anything. You know, I wrote, this book, The End of Science, and and it was it was based on the premise that we know a lot and we yeah. just have we're gonna have a hard time adding to what we know. But looking back now, I think that our knowledge, as extraordinary, amazing as it is, doesn't really amount to that much when right. it comes to explaining the mystery of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, are you can you are you working on something now that you can you can tell us about? Are you working on another book? Yeah, so I've been working on another book for the last seven years, um, and it, it's related to all of this stuff. So, um, so in the Wheeler journals, he you know he talks about a lot of people, especially his own students, who he he worked so closely with and cared so much about his students, and all of his students became very famous physicists, you know, Everett and Kip Thorne and Richard Feynman and, you know, like his student, Beckenstein, all these people that did amazing things. And um, But the one student he seemed to talk the most about was a guy named Peter Putnam, who I had never heard of. And I thought, how strange that there's a student of Wheeler's that I've never heard of. Um, and so I started looking it up. And it turns out to be this remarkable story of this guy who, who was really, by all accounts, really brilliant, did his PhD in physics under Wheeler at Princeton, but became really interested in um, the observer over the observed. And, and so he went into to neuroscience and cognitive science and um, sort of came up with this whole theory that I think is very related to these new theories of inactivism and embodied cognition, but this is back in starting in the forties and stuff. And, um, 
And he and Wheeler had like a very intense um, correspondence throughout their lives. Um, And it was sort of like this really interesting thing because I was interested in this question of like, what's the relationship between observer and observed? And then their relationship sort of embodied that like Wheeler's on the physics side and Putnam's on the cognitive science side and they're trying to to sort it out between the two of them. Um, Meanwhile, Putnam sort of dropped off the face of the earth. He wrote mountains of stuff, never published any of it, which drove Wheeler crazy. Um, And he ended up moving in the 60s down to like rural Louisiana and working as a janitor. And he was living in total poverty and he died in the 80s. on his, he was hit by a drunk driver on his bike on his way to work as a janitor. And when he died, he left in his will $40 million to the Nature Conservancy, which it turned out he had just made in the stock market, but never touched a penny of it. Um, Gave it all away to charity. There's all this art all over the country uh like princeton if you walk around the princeton campus there's these amazing sculptures everywhere that was all donated by him anonymously um so he had this amazing story and and he and wheeler had this really interesting relationship um but basically i tracked down all of his unpublished stuff and and the book is about kind of trying to understand what he was trying to get at which i think is very much like these inactivist ideas um and how that relates back to quantum mechanics and all the stuff that we've been talking about. So, God, that sounds great. <laughs> it's um, been a, it's been a lot. It's been a long seven years. So we'll see. But, um, well, I hope whenever you finish it that I can get you to come back and uh, and talk about it. I would love to. Yeah. For mind body problems, that that really sounds cool. Yeah. Um. So okay, we're we're actually over an hour. Uh, so um, I guess it's time to wrap it up. Uh, just thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. This is so fun. Uh, these ideas are like, you know, I feel like my, my brain goes all over the place, but, uh, but they're, all the interconnections are just so interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I always, I, I tell people, my students, science journalism is the best. Yes. <laughs> and when you're, you know, kind of an obsessively curious person, it's, yeah. there's nothing more fun. Um, Okay. Thank you so much, Amanda. Yeah. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. Thank you. You too.